things we see po politically now, the term Karen, um, a recently, I, I cannot remember which state he was from right at the moment, but a Native American US representative was asked to go back to his land, go, go back to his country. Um, and I mentioned the Karen trend because I, you know, the science behind that is a little shaky, so you don't know if it's what's going on. But there cer certainly seems to be a lot of people who think that uh, the, they're better than others, and others should just listen to them. And when we look at things like prejudice and discrimination, we see it, we can see it very overtly and very purposely on the system and individual levels. So uh, for example, the, the, the Native American being asked to go back to his own country, uh, we can see laws uh, being written that are very overt in their intent, such as the law in Arizona that doesn't get, permit you to talk about things like racism. Um, and we see a lot of the voting rules that, that, that will discriminate against minority populations. So we see that on a very overt level um, and it leaves a lot of people wondering why, why it even exists, because it seems like something that uh, we shouldn't engage in as, as kind of modern human beings. So we'll talk about the different reasons that uh, people fall into uh, discrimination and racism and those types of things. So that's kind of the topic we're going to hit tonight. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I talked about the overt types of discrimination and prejudice. We also have to understand that there's also unconscious types of discrimination and prejudice that people do. Um, you know, if we, for example, one of my very, very, very first research project was dealing with individuals with a, a disability and who would a, a person want to hear from, an expert or someone who has, in this case, we used epilepsy. So in the research, what we did is we just had two chairs sitting side by side, and we would randomly tell the person that either a person with epilepsy was going to come into the room and give them information about epilepsy, or one of the faculty experts in the area of epilepsy um, uh, is going to come into the room. And the measure that we used is we said, set the chairs however you want them in the room. And we found it very interesting that uh, when, when a person was faced with hearing information who directly had a disability like epilepsy, they would space their chair farther away uh, than if they were just going to be talking with an expert or someone who doesn't have the disability but knows something about it. And th those are examples of what we call covert discrimination because in the in in the measures of overt discrimination and stuff we didn't see any statistically significant difference between um, people who felt discriminatory towards a person with epilepsy versus the professional but they definitely measured they definitely distanced themselves physically more than they more than um, you would expect and so that, that's just an example of one of my very first research projects. And, and since then, we know that uh, when two people of a different race meet each other, they will take two steps back. Um, they, they'll usually put their shoulders back. They'll do different types of eye contact. Um, and we also know that, that there's been a term that has been coined over the last 20, 30 years called microaggressions. Um, and those can be covert in nature, a stare, a position of the body are an example, but also jokes that people make um, and, and different comments that people make when they're around people of a different race or a different place. So it's an interesting uh, topic and, and, and why we engage in this behavior is kind of going to be our topic for tonight, okay? I remember. Okay.
All right, so probably the first place that we should start in this discussion is getting the terminology out of the way. What is prejudice? What is discrimination? What are things like stereotypes and the like? So let's kind of get this out of the way. When we think about intergroup bias, intergroup bias being defined as normally, like when we talked about social identity theory, people like to view their group um, in a good um, uh, productive way. And therefore, one way to increase your group status is, of course, to be biased towards other outside groups. And we, in the broader, especially in the sociological um, literature, we recognize that there's three main types of intergroup bias. Now, I know that, they, for example, we use prejudice and discrimination as um, kind of interchangeably uh, in, in our everyday talk, uh, but I want everybody to understand the difference between these when we're talking about it academically and when we're talking about it um, in, 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 for example, the literature on, on things like prejudice and discrimination, okay? The first one, is stereotypes, and that's a belief about attributions that are thought to be characteristic of a member of a particular group, okay? And not, not to get into it very much, but uh, stereotypes develop, uh, we know, at a very, very young age. Um, we can see infants as, as young as six months creating creating different definitions of, of different groups based on the similarity to their mother. So we know that babies will, uh, in a sense, uh, put people who don't look like mom in a different category and create something about that person that they actually can be aversive for. And the further away uh, a, a person appears from mother, the more adversive the infant comes to, to, to be with that person. Um, stereotypes on, on the cognitive level have to do with the creation of what we call schemas. And schemas are a general representation for a category, okay? And uh, in, 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 in the usefulness of it, it allows us to reduce the complexity of our world, okay? It allows us to navigate our world on a general basis to determine who's safe for me, who's not. Um, uh, you know, I know in my psychology classes, we're able to remember about 100 individual names and everyone else we have to put in a category of some type. Um, and that, that's the schema. Now where the stereotypes come in is when we take especially those negative characteristics, those characteristics that then make that individual look different from my group. Um, that's where stereotypes start to play a role. And probably um, if we go back to, for example, our conversation about gender, Stereotypes about gender is probably um, uh, one of the more, most pervasive that we have. Um, uh, and and when, when a person is outside of that stereotype, we tend to uh, either bully or make fun or avoid or not want to be around that person. Um, uh, and, 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 and they're very evasive. In, in a lot of ways, and they're very hard to change because they're really based in the cognitive hardwiring of the brain, okay? Prejudice, so stereotypes are a general representation, and they're, they're often based on, on uh, you know, uh, a differentiation between I and them, us, we, and them, those types of comparison. Prejudice is a negative attitude or effective response towards a certain group and its individuals, members. So really prejudice is acting upon our stereotype to uh, have a negative view, um, have a negative feeling, a negative emotion about a different group than our own. So prejudice is then going to really be the basis for discrimination, okay? Uh, discrimination is the unfair treatment of a member of a particular group based on their membership in the group. So when we look at it from this perspective, 
the stereotype is the 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 cognitive neural uh, basis for our negative attitudes and beliefs about someone so when we talk about whoops when we talk about when we talk about prejudice i want you to keep in mind that we're talking about belief systems okay when we're talking about description discrimination we're talking about behavior we're talking about acting upon those prejudices okay And again, when we look at what are the sources for prejudice uh, beliefs, well, there's the social sources. So there's viewing people as unequal status. There's a social identification process, which we talked about earlier in the course. And then there's those cognitive sources. We already went over stereotype, uh, but perceived similarities and differences and elusory correlation. Now, an elusory correlation is when, you, when we see an association between a group of people and a given behavior, a given um, uh, way of being, and we associate that with those individuals. So earlier in the semester, we, we talked about objectively, um, uh, Native Americans actually don't drink uh, any more or any less than any of the other groups in the country. But there's an elusory correlation, and Frank actually brought this up, there's an elusory correlation that many Native Americans drink, that, that, that it's overrepresented within the population. And that's an example of an elusory correlation. Um, and so th those are kind of the sources. We have the social sources, the status we place on people, and, and, and the more distant they are, the, 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 the more unequal of a status we're going to provide. And we have social identification, which is trying to make our group uh, seem uh, as good or, or seem uh, different than another group because we want to view our group in a, in, in a positive light, as you would say. Um, so there are some different kind of theories that we should go over. When we talk about unequal status, uh, there's a theory called realistic conflict theory, okay? And what realistic conflict theory states is that um, people... People, because we like seeing ourselves in a positive, good light, um, and when we see our group suffering, either it's either real or imagined suffering, we have a tendency to blame that on another group. Okay, we have the tendency to say it's because of them that we're losing our jobs, or we don't have access to schooling, or those types of things. In this, what we do need to have is 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 either competition which we talked about with the robbers cave experiment if everyone remembers or we have to have what's called frustration aggression hypothesis okay and this is where a group uh, bl basically blames another group for what they see as their perceived uh, problems okay we saw this very clearly in uh, 2018, um, when when uh, politicians started saying that, uh, uh, and it was largely to a white population, uh, that it was because of the Latin Americans coming over, especially Mexicans, that were creating um, all of the problems. I think one of the famous lines from a politician back then was, um, they bring their their drugs, they bring their crime, they bring their rape, um, all of those types of things. And in that, what that was doing was creating what's called frustration and aggression, that, that they are the ones who we should be blaming for either our real or perceived deficits. Um, but again, 
just to bring this to light, elusory correlations uh, really fits that. Um, if anybody has watched uh, the, 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 the video I did for Halloween, we actually see that there's a negative association between crime and uh, immigration, legal or not legal, that the more immigrants we have coming into our country, and there's a positive immigration rate, both, again, legal and non-legal, our homicide rates and violence rates go down in the United States. However, when we have a negative immigration rate, meaning we don't have anybody coming to the country or we have people leaving the country, our homicide and, and violent crime rates go up. And so, the, and this is what I mean by uh, prejudices aren't always um, placed in reality. Their, their, their belief systems and their attitudinal systems um, because when we look at it from an objective point of view, uh, it becomes uh, very, um, very not as uh, you would say valid. And I think I brought this up in the class too about uh, age uh, discrimination, about how older generations think the younger generations are, are, are lazy or whatever it may be, even though we see one of the most productive um, uh, people and happiest people being raised today than we have seen in the past, despite um, the older people's uh, perceptions. So again, fact, reality um, uh, don't always mix when we're talking about things like prejudice and um, thoughts. This, um, <laughs> this uh, graph, talks about our economic conditions, well, for example, with racial violence, okay? Um, and what this represents is, is this is a total number of lynchings between these, uh, these, these times. And the lower numbers, if you look at the lower numbers here and here and right here, this is when the United States were going through an economic boom. It was a boom time, uh, with the exceptions of this, this time in the 30s. Uh, but by this time, lynching was outlawed, so it wasn't as, as prevalent. So we got to keep that in mind. But we see from this example, when we have bad econ uh, economic years, we also have increasing in, for example, violence. Um, and so this is an example of uh, racial violence with the economic condition, or what we call that threat to economic conditions. Hmm. For some reason, my... And I'm not going to spend too much time on this when we talked about the social sources of um, um, excuse me, when we talked about the social sources of prejudice, we've talked about social identity and social categorization, where we divide people into our in-groups and our out-groups. And in-group bias is a view that own, your own group is uh, uh, favorable. And, and, and this is an important point to make because when I talked about the stereotype, we got to remember that prejudice is a byproduct of our thinking process. So stereotypes uh, is the example of this, which is a, a sweeping generalization of a social group. Um, and it influences thought by processing the information consistent with the stereotype. There's something called a confirmation bias. And what a confirmation bias is, is it's a cognitive bias 
that when we truly believe something about a group or about just about anything, we will both purpose, purposefully and unconsciously uh, seek out information that uh, proves our bias. And we will ignore information that, that disconfirms our bias. Uh, probably a good example of this is uh, of confirmation bias is um, experiments where we had uh, people do come in, and this has nothing to do with stereotypes, but it's a good example of what we do when we have a confirmation bias. But we had people come into a lab uh, in a more controlled type of college setting where the student stays were kind of more controlled by the experimenters, and they gave them a bogus. Um, uh, personality test. And then they basically flipped a coin and said, based on your personality test, you're going to have a good day. Or based on your personality, you're going to have a bad day. And then they set up to where they knew that those people were going to have an equal number of positive and negative experiences. Okay. And then either at the end of the day or the next day, they would have the person return and have them recall their experiences. And they found that people who were told that they were gonna have a, a good day remembered roughly more than 75% of the good things that happened and less than 15% of the bad things that happened. Whereas people who were told they were going to have a bad day remembered 90% of the things that um, went bad, and they only remembered less than 5% of the things that went good, okay? That's an example of confirmation bias. It's, it's also the reason why things like horoscopes and, and things like that work. When it comes to the level of stereotypes, though, it comes down to the idea that we purposely and sometimes unconsciously only seek that information that confirms that stereotype that we have of that group or that those the individuals were we're interacting with and we'll focus uh, consistently with the stereotype and use tacit interferences to make inconsistent of your uh, information appear consistent okay The other cognitive thing that uh, we, we see when we have people describe out groups and in groups and we ask them, are they more alike or are they more different than your group? We find what's called outgroup homogeneity. And what that is, is that we think out groups members are more alike. We see them more alike than different. Where with our own group, we have what's called heterogeneous attitudes where we see that groups within our members, within our tribes, as we would say, or our families, or, or whatever group, uh, racial language, any group we, we think about, we see them as more diverse and more different, okay? This is also why if you um, ask, for example, uh, um, uh, a, a show, well, let me put it this way. If you show, uh, for example, white Caucasian pictures of Asian people, they will see the features of those Asian people as more similar and won't be able to tell the difference between them in what's called a differential task, okay? However, if you ask Asians to uh, rate the similarity or if they can tell differences between faces of white Caucasian people, they have difficulty with that. They see most white Caucasians as being more similar in even physical appearance than different. But then when you ask them about their own groups and you use the same exact pictures, they see the more distinct differences, for the example, the Asians viewing other Asians and the white Caucasians viewing other white Caucasians. Okay? I bring that example up because it was one of the first experiments done on this idea of, of homogeneity and heterogeneous, uh, both in-group and out-group. But since then, there's been a, 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 a lot of research on things like face recognition, um, attitudes, uh, intelligent level, um, you know, we, we, the, 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 the bias that Americans have against Asians and mathematics is another good example, okay? 
Um, so this is the other kind of cognitive source of prejudice is that we're more likely to see someone of an out group being more similar and therefore we can't see their distinct qualities both physically and psychologically. And we talked about the illusory correlations where we're more likely to see uh, negative things being associated with out groups where more positive things tend to be associated with, with our in-group, okay? And we tend to overestimate rates for negative behaviors of minority groups, okay? So that, that, that's a, a more specific example of um, prejudice. Discrimination, therefore, is the behavior that is directed towards members of some social groups. And sometimes it can be subtle forms, such as something called tokenism, uh, performing trivial actions for minorities is a, is a really good example of this. Uh, where I was raised, it was 98% um, uh, uh, white Caucasian. And in the community I lived, there was one black family. That black family was, was uh, invited to every social gathering there was because everyone wanted to have that token there that uh, and 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 so performing these trivial acts because of that uh, but uh, if you asked if any of them ever went to for example their home if you asked if they would ever um, associate uh, family members beyond that group level the answer would be no okay Reverse discrimination is leaning over backwards to treat a target uh, targets of a prejudice favorable, favorably. So th th this is the example, um, uh, and it's been talked a lot about it. I really enjoy our our, our librarian's view on it, uh, Liz Zapata, um, where. Uh, she talks a lot about uh, the contradiction with Native American people being romanticized versus being seen as real people. And what she mentions about that, and, and, and uh, we've had a lot of instructors this way that she's uh, helped correct, is romanticizing the Native American population as this mystical um, um, almost uh, supernatural in some way uh, group of people when in reality you know like everyone else and you're doing what you need to do to make it through life and yes you have beliefs and you have, but it's more diverse than, than than that so the idea of reverse discrimination is kind of that idea that on one end uh, uh, white Caucasians tend to romanticize uh, Native American populations, but then on the other end, they tend to heavily discriminate as well. And, and the example of alcoholism that, uh, that was brought up in, in Frank's uh, explanation is an example of, okay, you know, on one end, we're going to do this. On the other, um, we're going to do this. There has been a term called modern racism. Uh, modern racism is this this just this notion that uh, you can't just go out and and call someone um, uh, a negative uh, word or you can't just go beat someone you have to do it more co kind of covertly um, the challenge to this has been uh, since about 2016 uh, we've seen uh, the old-fashioned type of racism start to make gains back in the united states where uh, people are willing to physically harm other uh, individuals. People are uh, willing to uh, really overtly um, put other races down. And again, uh, I think a good example of this that uh, is still I still think needs a lot of research, but the whole Karen phenomenon where we see a lot more aggression from especially um, uh, white supremacist groups and those that have come out. Uh, I think um, the January sixth uh, insurrection on our on our government had a lot to do um, with these ideas of nationalism and um, 
white supremacy, majority of people who uh, did, did uh, uh, evade our capital were, were white supremacists. Um, and so we're starting to see the kind of old fashioned type of racism here in the United States make a return. So again, just kind of saying this uh, modern racism is prejudice directed towards other racial groups that exist alongside and rejection of explicit racist group. Probably a good example of, of uh, the modern racism is, is uh, the people who claim to be uh, colorblind. Uh, the people, and, and this is a form of what's called benevolent racism is stating, you know, and, and, and you gotta, if, if you've taken the introduction to philosophy or a logic class or something, you'll kind of understand this, this syllogism is, is uh, um, I'm not prejudiced because I don't see color, I see people. The problem with that logic, if you think about it, is, is order for you not to be colorblind, you have to recognize that there's color. And you if you have to admit that you're not racist because you're not seeing that color that you're seeing, what are you being? And so it's a very illogical way of, of, of uh, what we call this modern racism and this idea of benevolent racism, that I'm not racist and I use my words to try and prove it, but in almost in every situation I'm in, I, I still... Uh, am willing to be racist and make group uh, differentiations um, and support uh, group separation. So uh, the, the person claiming to be colorblind is a good, good example of this thing we call benevolent racism. There are ways, um, and I think we did this in my, the class already, is measuring uh, uh, one's true uh, attitude. And one of the ways we do this is through what's called an IAT or an implicit association test. And basically what this test is, is it, it, um, it presents a picture of someone as an example, and it puts a positive or negative ter uh, term. And uh, what's measured is the number of times. So one is times where you hit a negative term for a person of a different race versus your own race. But the other thing that it does is it measures the amount of time it takes you uh, to, for example, if you're, if you're taking an IAT test against uh, Asian people, as an example, uh, in some of the tests, it will only give a positive term for a picture of the Asian person. And what it's doing is it's measuring the amount of time it takes you to uh, click the positive term versus the negative term. And we have consistently found that groups um, that have a history of prejudice and discrimination against each other, even in, in 2022, uh, they're, they're much slower giving positive terms to those that, that other group um, um, versus their own group, okay? And so that's what the IAT kind of, kind of looks for, okay? The procedure it does is, is it uses a procedure called priming. So the picture of the individual, that, that, what, that what we have figured out is that primes the stereotype people have towards that other group. And so they stop seeing the person as an individual and all they're remembering is everything that they've tagged to that group. So it takes them longer to process a positive term towards that group versus a negative term, term towards that group, okay? And this is an example, uh, you know, press D key with left hand for unpleasant words uh, and tattooed faces, press K. Uh, for right hand, pleasant words uh, for non-tattooed faces. And so we find that, uh, you know, with, with a different, for example, tattoo faces, there's more positive versus negative terms, okay?
Okay. These the the difference between implicit attitudes, though, and what we call explicit, those ones that we're willing to say out loud, is that they're actually more automatically activated. Okay. So if we go back to the IAT example, if we ask people, you know. Uh, what they think about, for example, Asian people or white Caucasian people or African-American people, they tend to not, uh, they, they tend to take a longer time to produce their response. But what we have found with the IAT tests is that people uh, tend to have those prejudices very quickly and, and, and a lot of times very unconsciously. Um, it's a, it was an, uh, one, uh, uh, one time uh, I was uh, working with a, a group of people. Um, it was one of the nonprofits that I worked with as a consultant. And uh, they were very much a human rights activist group. Um, and, but I noticed that the, you know, they were very strange towards certain groups. And, and but they, 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 won't wouldn't be willing to admit to that so we gave them iat tests and the people who were the most staunchest um, human rights uh, i don't discriminate against everybody tended to have the worst iet scores uh, and so even people who who uh, tend to say hey i'm 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 totally prejudice free colorblind quote unquote actually tend to score the worst on IAT tests. We think this happens because maybe with this population, they're struggling inside with their actual attitudes and beliefs about another group versus what they, they should uh, think externally or explicitly, so. And, uh, I want to talk about what about being a member of a stigmatized group, okay? Uh, because because there's a lot of a lot of things that come along with being a member of a stigmatized group, such as um, uh, hearing what's told about your your group all of the time, and that can start to internalize beliefs about uh, who you are and, and the type of person you you're, you're, you are. Uh, but we also have this thing we call stereotype threat. And this is whenever we feel like we're being stereotyped, we tend to act more consistent with the stereotype that we have, okay? And probably one of my most favorite experiments that, that, that look at stereotype threat is uh, research that was done uh, at UCLA and Stanford University, um, I'll give kind of a simple version with the UCLA, is uh, they, they took um, uh, a group of uh, Black um, students from the inner city community college, uh, the kind of community college that you, you, you can stereotype about and, and, and you know that there's a lot of things going on with, with that community college. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to measure cognitive ability. Uh, because the research showed that, you know, people from inner cities, especially when they're a minority group, don't have as strong cognitive skills as non-stigmatized group. Okay. So the first thing that they did is they measured the, the, the white kids um, at Stanford and at U, U, UCLA to kind of say, where are they at? Okay. And so I'm going to kind of draw a graph because I, I, I've always loved this research. So I'm going to put a W for the white kids. And this is just a map of cognitive abilities, cognitive abilities, problem solving, being able to think clearly, um, things that you kind of think with an IQ test, okay? And these kids measured, you know, decently what you would expect. Uh, kids from Stanford University or or uh, um, UCL would a would measure okay but we had they had two different conditions uh, they had a group of student randomly assigned to week one 
or week two, okay? In week one, when the uh, black students showed up to um, UCLA, uh, there were white students who were Confederates for the research, didn't say a thing to them, but they were standing by the door, they were standing in the hallways, and they were just there, okay? No interaction, no, no verbal um, interactions, none, none of that kind of stuff. They were just planted there, basically. In the second Saturday, and the reason why they chose the Saturday, Saturday is they had no one at the facility. Uh, it was just the, the, the Black students uh, with a, a Black proctor, um, and, and that was it. So here we have the presence of a, a different group, a, a majority group in this case. Here we have the no presence of a majority group. So this condition would be an example of stereotype threat. The presence of another group who tend to have a negative stereotype then create a threat to the individual. What was really interesting in this research was the scores on the cognitive tests. Because in the group one who had the stereotype threat, they scored what the people predicted for them. They scored really, really low. Um, the interesting thing, though, was in the second group. Uh, where, where they went, there were no white people around. It was just them taking a test. Um, they actually scored just as good as a Stanford and UCLA students on the, on the uh, battery of cognitive tests, okay? So just the mere presence of another group can create conditions in which a person will behave towards the stereotype of that group, okay? And um, I think another really good example of this is, is recently TOCC had a, a early childhood uh, education uh, symposium where they brought in elders and uh, other places that uh, were working on indigenizing their, their, their curriculum. Um, and, and using their language in classrooms and, and, and the like. And it, what caught my eye was in the communities where uh, the elementary schools, the, the early childhood education centers were culturally, uh, um, not, I don't wanna say culturally similar to where uh, those students came from ver versus uh, students who uh, go to a very westernized uh, childcare, early childhood education, preschool setting. The students that are in that culturally consistent uh, schools are doing what these guys do, did at, at UCLA. Those schools are high-performing, top-rated programs in our nation. Why? Because they're making their education consistent with their culture and way of life. And so that's a kind of a more real-life example of stereotype threat, okay? Um, uh, now, now that, those are all covert uh, uh, um, examples of stereotype threat. Uh, we can see more blatant ones when, when um, we see individuals acting more consistent with their stereotype uh, than when not. Um, I can give an example of this. I came from a very impoverished uh, family. Um, we, we did not have a lot of money. Uh, we moved from place to place like gypsies. Uh, school was not a priority. Work was. Um, and so in that setting, you know, language skills are a lot different. The way you talk to someone is a lot different. And, uh, you know, my, my wife noticed this the first time that I brought her back to uh, where I came from, Idaho, Montana, that area. 
she she noticed that my language completely changed. Uh, my the way I talk, um, I use smaller, shorter words, shorter sentences. I use more um, vernacular, more kind of what you would call redneck type language. And, and she recognized this um, uh, when 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 she first went and visited um, my family. And so that's that's kind of a more overt version of stereotype threat where you actually start acting and behaving consistent with that stereotype. So in some cases, we don't do it on purpose. Okay, um, I don't think uh, any uh, uh, place would purposely design a school system that would put their, their their children at a disadvantage, but it's obvious that we do this. Uh, no one would would think that just uh, having the presence of, of of somebody who's seen as a threat versus being just with your own group would have a difference on cognitive ability, but it does. Uh, but the more overt type is when we actually are changing our behavior to fit the stereotype that 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 is given to us. Okay. So uh, I'll end with this tonight, and then I'll ask for any questions that anybody might have. Um, these are just some some uh, ideas of reducing uh, uh, prejudice, and we've talked about them more more um, uh, specifically in other lectures. So I won't um, um, uh, um, press on them more. One is we need to maybe. We need to teach parents to socialize their children to be more tolerant. We know that these processes of group grouping people is, some, is something to do with our neural capacity. It's our brain capacity. So it's gonna happen. Um, but uh, the thing that um, um, uh, we have learned about the difference between a prejudiced person and a non-prejudiced person is the prejudiced the non-prejudiced person, if there even is one, works every single day. They admit their prejudice, they admit their biases, and they work every day to act counter to those. Uh, one of the things that I talk a lot in my social work classes and my group-based classes, my mental health provider classes, is in order to effectively work with people, Every time you walk into the helping situation, whether it be a group or a client, you need to take your prejudices and your bias and set them outside the door. Don't forget about them. And then go into that room and be the person. It's a choice that we make. Uh, increasing intergroup contact. Contact must in involve things like cooperation and in interdependence, as we talked about with the robber cave examples in an earlier lecture. Uh, we can't just put two groups together. Uh, we have to have uh, that what what we term that superordinate go goal, where there's cooperation and interdependence. Norm favoring group e equality must exist. So changing the norms of, of what it means to have different classes in the United States, as an example. Uh, focus on individual-based uh, uh, versus cat category-based processing. So taking that literal view and teaching that cognitive skill of, of resisting the, the categorization process, okay? Um, and extend what we call contact hypothesis, okay? Knowing that members of an in-group have formed friendships without group members may reduce prejudice. And we, and we know this, this helps um, when we have increased cooperation within, in, within individuals. And that's one of the main reasons really high functioning organizations prize diversity uh, because they know that they'll get differentiating thought without uh, with friendship which reduces the overt and the, those uh, uh, um, uh, iat impulses those uh, implicit attitude impulses through those friendships and that contact so that's what's been proposed uh, i think so far um, i think there's a, a a long road to go on those um, 
um, uh, before we see that, okay. And things like focusing on similarities instead of not and uh, and non-threatening out groups, recategorization, resetting the boundaries between us and them, um, focus on other specific traits and outcomes, um, attribution-driven processing rather than group-based stereotyping, are all things that at least in the lab, and I'm going to fully admit this, these these things that I'm talking about have been shown in the lab. But uh, they, they, they're not well documented in, in our regular, what we see, regular actions of, or there's no real world examples of, of these things other than, you know, the organizations that um, promote um, diversity and those types of things. So, all right. So that is the lecture on stereotypes, discrimination, and prejudice. Is there any comments, questions? Frank, I can see you there thinking. Um, I'm curious what's going through your mind. Uh, I'd like to answer any questions that anybody has. So the floor is yours. Oh, I'm okay. You're all right? It's a pretty uh, common uh, thing that we deal with daily. I mean, it's nothing new to us or to me anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there's prejudice to marry where some people admit it, some people deny it. Uh, it's kind of hard to to say much about it because you know it's real, they exist, and it's never going to go away, as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Yeah. So it's just it's life's got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that the, that's the kind of the the difficult takeaway message because you know as a yeah, the psychologists, we know it's always going to exist unless there's actual neural changes in the capacity of our brains. Right. It's, it's good to be aware of it, to recognize it and, mm -hmm. and recognize it when you see it, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, I, think but... I, I think that's the major point of a, at least the good research that I've seen mm -hmm. is, is that recognition, accepting it and making a choice whether you're going to act on it or not. Correct. But just to deny it, you're not helping out very much. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody else have any questions or comments? Guess not. Yeah. Quiet tonight. That's all right. It's election night. We're all curious. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, gang. 